We're in the series, The Power of Ministry, and it's a very significant chapter in the middle of Luke's gospel. Jesus has trained his followers, his disciples and his followers for several months, probably more than a year, and he sends them out on mission. And their mission is to join the mission of God, who's reconciling all things to himself, breaking the power of the curse, as we saw in the and restoring authority so that we can bring shalom, God's peace, on earth, goodwill towards people on whom God's favor rests, Luke 2 verse 14. So there's this sense in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus models this ministry by the anointing and gifts of the Spirit and now sends out not just the 12, as if they were the exception, but emphatically now also the 72. We're going to come back to that big picture next week, but in Luke 10 verse 25 we read of this incident. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Notice where Jesus draws his authority from. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. (laughs) Love God with everything you've got, and love everybody else. And if you're doing that, you'll find life. But he wanted to justify himself. So this expert in the law asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Now this is a real hot-button issue. Listen to an Old Testament reference from uh, where this passage, love your neighbor as yourself, comes from in Leviticus 19 verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So it seems as though all that the Old Testament is requiring is that you identify who your people are and that's your span of care. Now, if you notice and remember the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaching us, even pagans love people who love them. It's a real sign that, that you're connected to the God who made all and loves all, that you love those who are not among your people. So this comes to who is my neighbor? Almost certainly implying the real question, who really belongs to Israel? Who is in? Who is out? Who are the people that I need to love if I want to know? Jesus' followers in the book of Acts would repeatedly be persecuted and get into serious trouble because they dared to suggest that the people we need to give care to and love to is everyone. They started including the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Where did they get that idea from? Well, let's carry on in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, that's why we weren't going to do this as an act, and then they beat And went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
so to a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity or had compassion on him. And he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on the remedies of the day, oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus turns to the expert in the law. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied. We must hear the resignation, the sigh, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go do the same. So three points this morning. A story of mercy, a theology of, and it's our actions that count. Number one, a story of mercy. A man we assume to be a Jew heads off on a journey about the distance from Pinelands to Hart Bay. It's also got a lot of mountainous terrain in the way, but except the steep and almost all downhill. On the way, this man is attacked. He loses even his clothes. He's left half dead. A priest and a Levite who would have been teacher of the law, maybe an expert in the law, both Go out of their way to avoid the man. It's almost like Jesus is telling a little bit of a story. You know, you heard the story about the priest, the Levite, and the robbers. And you're expecting a punchline. And it's an anti-clerical, an anti-clergy punchline. But they go out of their way to avoid this man who is in deep, deep distress. And Jesus does not, in the story, supply their motives Or give their reasons. Because quite frankly, excuses don't matter, actions do. And so both would have been seen as the religious professionals. And the audience is now expecting a punchline that is kind of anti-religion. Instead, this introduces a devastating, sort of like left field twist to the story. He introduces a Samaritan. They were expecting he was going to introduce ordinary guy, an everyday person that they could identify with. Instead, he introduces someone into the story they could least identify with as people from Israel. The last person they would be thinking of as a neighbor. Extraise person who was regarded by the Jewish people of the time as unclean and inferior in every way. We know from John 4, they would not even use the same eating utensils. They would not talk to one another. Now, even more unsettling in the story is that the Samaritan is not the person in need of care. It's not like Jesus tells the story in such a way that there's a person who's different from you and they're in distress. tells the story that in distress, as it were, and someone who's completely different to you is coming to show you love and compassion. So it is the Samaritan 
who in the story has agency, has power, has the means to take care. (laughs) The kind of person they would have written off is the person who chooses to act with compassion and has the power. The Samaritan becomes the embodiment of mercy. And as you look at the story, you see how much effort this mercy took out of the Samaritan. He has to head over to this severely injured man, beaten, probably stabbed. He places himself at risk by delaying his journey in this perilous terrain. And then he dispenses known remedies. He bandages the man, treats his wounds with oil and wine. And then he places the injured man on his own donkey, and now he has to walk. And he's got to slow down to get through this dangerous terrain. And then he takes him to the local holiday inn, and he nurses him through the critical care phase of what this man needs. And then so he spends a couple of days and looks after this man. And then he goes and pays two months' rent, about two denarii, and if we work it out backwards and the commentaries or anything to go by, about two months' worth of uh, rent that was paid in advance or board and lodge. And then he establishes a follow-up process. It's not even as if he's just given his money and can now wash his hand. There's so much agency, so much that this man brings into the story. And Jesus tells the story, remember, in the context of explaining to us what it looks like to really love God and love others. You see, Jesus is expanding our definition of ministry and why it's crucial for the of ministry to actually expand it and look at the might of mercy. As we'll see next week, in this chapter 72 of Jesus' followers have been on mission, they've been blown away by the power and the authority that they have experienced. Satan, as it were, gets tied up, his house raided by happy followers, healing people, setting them free. And you Ministry couldn't get better than this. Well, Jesus just defi- just says, ministry gets bigger than this. You see, faith for ministry does include these and wonders, but faith for ministry must open our lives to love. Love must flow through us to others in whatever way possible. Sometimes it does flow through a miracle and we rejoice and celebrate. Sometimes it comes through costly mercy and compassion, reaching out to those who are different from ourselves, who might think less of us, who may have rejected us. If you remember, several weeks ago, Hillary preached on making people whole. And here we see another way in which the power of ministry is helping us make people whole, in the midst of pain and trauma and suffering and loss. Think of, and I know it's not Christmas, uh, Christmas time, but the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. It's an absolutely stunning carol, and it's also great theology. And there's a line in there, and uh, I'm tempted, but I won't sing it, where it says, He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings known 
as far as the curse is found. So wherever you see something damaged, something broken, something torn, something stolen, something dead, you can know Jesus is coming in his mercy, in his love, to make blessings known wherever there was evidence of the curse. As Cindy was leading us in prayer just now, I just reminded that you know, we, we're wanting to say, God, do more. And in some ways, we just need to say, God, help me to see more. You're already here. You're already working. Help me to see more. He comes to make things known as far as the curse is found. So Jesus creates this. Yes, he's a fictional character, but he is at work. And in some ways, represents Jesus himself. So we have this story of mercy. The second thing we have, though, is a theology of love. And I need to be careful because, of course, theologians and evangelists through the centuries love to jump on all the parables between, as it were, the story of the Good Samaritan and the person of Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus so obviously came to our rescue. Jesus so obviously paid a huge price. Jesus put himself at risk of the robbers and was himself killed. And so we're tempted to treat this story as if it were an allegory, another, a different kind of parable of the history of salvation. Now, of course, Jesus is the supreme example of mercy and love. But we mustn't use, like, spiritualize the main point of the story, which is going to end with go and do likewise. Jesus is developing a theology of love, and his disciple John Later, right in 1 John 3 and verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Then he says this, verse 17, And if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, now how far is a brother or sister? Well, Everyone made in God's image, if we take the Lord's Prayer. And any neighbor is everyone, if we take this story. If we see them and we have a pity on them, that's the key thing, developing a theology of love. How can the love of God be in them? That's an ambiguous statement. How can the love of God? How can God's love really have taken hold of me if I've got no concern for others? And how can I claim... That I have love for God, the love of God existing in me, if I'm just completely indifferent to others. How can I claim to love? How can the presence and knowledge of God's love for me even be in me when other people experience no benefit? That's the challenge. You see, it is the same heart, the same Spirit that anoints for power that moves us to mercy. The same heart, the same capital S, Spirit of Jesus, that anoints for power that also moves us in mercy. So this theology of love is the thing that we receive. 
And it's important for a second reason. Healthy love is able also to have boundaries. Sometimes love says yes, and sometimes parents know. Love must say no. Steve Corbett and Brian Fickett have an excellent book about the theology of mercy that must engage, but its title is this, When Helping Hurts. And they distinguish between the mercy of intervening in a crisis where you need to bring Keyword, relief. And then the next, the work of rehabilitation. Where instead of just relief, you're actually starting to help a process of coming out of what the trauma and the crisis produce. And then the last step, which is genuinely empowering others, and this is the work of development. In which people are no longer seen as a problem but they're actually seen as a huge resource. And they are the people with agency. And one of the things that uh, Corbett and Fickett caution us not to do is to get stuck in either relief or even rehabilitation. And so sometimes when you've shown mercy, one of the kindest things you can do is reach a point where you say, I can do this no longer because... It would be unloving. A theology of love helps you to say no when the relationship becomes destructive and dependent. And you're not actually helping people any longer. You're actually hurting them by keeping them dependent upon you. Does that make sense? Just nod your head at home. Okay, great. There we go. So... Rescue work was clearly the right thing to do. Step one, this man is half dead. It's the right thing to do for on Jericho Road. But it's not always the right thing to do when your highest value is a theology of love. So a theology of love, loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, helps you to frame how to engage in different situations like this. It frees us from becoming someone's permanent rescuer. (laughs) And it also challenges inside of us a Messiah complex where we have to rescue others in order to feel better about ourselves. You know, the need to rescue is an action of your ego, (laughs) not of the Spirit of God. If, If rescuing others is about me, then I'm missing the point. It's precisely because reaching to them in their need is an action from God that I express a theology of love. And that takes us into our last point. And it's our actions that count. So try this at home. Often you'll see something amazing. You'll see a story. You'll see something on, uh, on Netflix or something. And then there might be a little bit of an advice given there, a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. Now, I want to tell you, when it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to following Jesus, Jesus really, really wants you to try this at home. (laughs) This is stuff we need to be doing. All the way from signs and wonders to these radical acts of self-giving love and mercy. The priest and the Levite in the parable are not our models. Jesus does not give them voice. He does not explore their motives. He does not unpack their fears. He simply describes their actions and contrasts them with the man whose actions reveal what real love looks like. 
And the next words in 1 John 3 uh, verse 18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but in actions and in truth. So the point of it is, try this at home. Just do it. And interesting, this is not the work of a few highly trained individuals. There was a young man named Patrick who was captured by a paramilitary force and forced into child labor. Experience caused him to turn to God. In his captivity, although he had a kind of Christian-ish background, he himself had not owned it, but in his captivity, he found that his faith came alive. And after six years of praying, and he was a shepherd out on the hills, and he had prayed during the day, pray at night, and he started having deep, deep spiritual encounters. And the things that he'd been taught from a Christian childhood had it were sort of come up in his memory, even though he had not believed them. And during this time, this these truths came back in his memory, the memory verses he had learned, whatever it was. And his faith came alive and he learned to discern God's voice. And one day as he's praying, he hears God tell him he needs to leave immediately and start walking to the coast because in two months' time, it's, that's how long it's going to take him to, to escape, in two months' time there will be a ship waiting for him to take him safety. And so he obeys, just starts walking. And sure enough, two months later, he gets to the coast and a ship is waiting. And although the crew tell him, you're nuts and you're not allowed to get on board, he, he's still like, he starts praying again and he starts praying. They say, come, get on board. And so he gets on board and he escapes his slavery. And he travels to Europe. And he studies, and he becomes even more convinced of his faith. And now it's not just distant memories, and he's able to work with the Scripture and memorize it. And eventually he gets to go home. And when he's home, apparently safe, one night, he has a vision in a dream, in his sleep. A young man in his dream has the name of Victorious. I wonder who that could be. A young man named in a dream gives him some letters. And he reads the first letter. I don't know how many others, but he tells us he reads the first letter. And the letter is written to him from the people who made him their slave. Remember, it's a dream. And they say to him, we beg you. We beg you. Young man who is now holy. Walk among us again. And he realizes Jesus has come, his name is Victorious, and he's come to him in his dream, and he's pointing him to go back to the very people that carried him off in his childhood and made him a slave. And seemingly God had delivered him. And God had God had told him how to escape. But now go back. And he has to overcome a lot of obstacles, but Patrick returns to the land of slavery and captivity and starts an apostolic missional movement that changed the course of not just the history of the land, but the history of the world. 
His ministry is marked by signs and wonders, evangelism, healing, deliverance, together with hospitality, mercy, establishing places of safety and places of learning. He is showing this profound mercy and forgiveness towards his former slaves' masters. And he's doing mercy in really practical ways. This is a pagan slave culture. And so he has to do rescue work, rehabilitation work. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to do completely transformational development work. And the island of Ireland would, in about 150 years, move from brutal pagan barbarism to become known as saints and scholars. How did he do this? Well, God did it, obviously. But what he did right is he kept telling people, do this at home. He kept giving his ministry away. He kept making ministry actionable. You didn't have to be a professional. You just had someone who loved God and loved your name, and you could get in and do it. And so he wrote, and we know him as St. Patrick of Ireland, and they have St. Patrick's Day every year. Nearly 1,600 years ago, interesting, he had a ministry theology that was rooted in the Trinity. And he says, According, therefore, to the measure of your faith in the Trinity, you can proceed without holding back from danger to make known the great gift of God, His everlasting comfort, and to spread His name everywhere with confidence and without fear. And it's this belief that God will bring comfort, God will show mercy, that enables him to go to ordinary people. And then to believe that those ordinary people, those everyday people, the people with neighbors, the people whose hearts are set on fire for God, and awaken to love for others, can not just be taught theology, but can begin to multiply action. So as we wrap up this morning, there's a story of mercy. There's a theology of love. And there is very much our actions that count. So let's pray together. If anyone in the room wants to come and just be part of this ministry time, you Welcome to come and join me. Father, we want to say thank you that your mercy is so mighty. That your mercy is one of the greatest signs and wonders that we will ever see. We want to acknowledge that we need this mercy. but also that you call us to show this mercy. To go and do likewise. To go and give it away. To try this at home. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, asking you to apply this in us and through us. So let's just wait. Come, Holy Spirit. Won't you show us how loved we are? 
Jesus, I want to pray that you would drop into our minds someone to show love to. Let's get that practical. Won't you bring a name or a face? We can just show your love to. Remember, we want to make it about you. I want to thank you, Father, that you've excluded nobody in this command. That it's for each and every one of us. And we don't have to spend money. (laughs) You've given us thoughts and creativity, ability to love. We were made to love because we were made by you. So won't you move us from a good idea into action. So I bless you today to take a profound word and to do it. To love well. In Jesus' name, amen.